I wonder, uh, those of you here who are Christians today, who know the Lord, have been uh, born again by His grace, or seeking to walk with Him uh, by the Spirit, those of you here who identify as Christians, uh, in your experience, uh, what has been the most wonderful aspect of being a Christian? What have you found to be, in your Christian walk, your walk with the Lord, the most wonderful thing about being a Christian? If, if, uh, if a, a non-Christian person came to you and said, you know, I, I know you're a Christian, you seem to love being a Christian, you participate in the church, and you do all these Christian things, well, what's so great about being a Christian? What do you love most about being a Christian? Well, I, I think most Christians would answer that the most wonderful thing about being a Christian goes, goes something like this, that, that the most wonderful thing about being a Christian is being saved from your sins, and being united to Christ, and being adopted as sons and daughters of God, and, and knowing that the wrath of God isn't against me, but that God is for me, and that, and that I'm saved. Uh, I'm going to be in paradise forever with the Lord Jesus Christ because He has removed uh, my sins, and He has suffered uh, the penalty that my sins deserved. The best thing about being a Christian is that I am a Christian, and that I've been saved, and that I'm safe from the wrath of God. Maybe the second thing, maybe the second thing, and there's all sorts of things we might say, maybe the second thing that most people would say is that the most wonderful aspect of Christianity is that we're drawn into a new community. That by virtue of being saved, by virtue of being in Christ, by virtue of being born again, it's not like we're just saved and then, and then, and then sort of sent along our merry way by ourselves. But by being saved, by being adopted as sons and daughters of God, by being born again, we're drawn into a new community. And the Bible calls this community the church. And the Bible refers to this new community as the body of Christ. In Christ, the Bible teaches from the passage that Brad just read, we really are members of the body of Christ. And we're members one to another. We're all connected as the body of Christ. Some of us uh, may be like the hand or the foot or the eye or the tongue, but every one of us is members of the same body. We're part of that new community. Another way the scriptures talk about this new community, the church is, describes the, the church as a family. Uh, in the family of God, what do we call our, each other? Brothers and sisters. Uh, some of you, I, I, I'll say, hey, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Uh, it's not because we're, we're like a family. It's because in actual fact, we are a family. Uh, we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this community that we've been drawn into. In fact, uh, the early Christians used to talk about uh, this dynamic of a family community so much so that those who had no reference to Christianity, didn't understand what it was all about, thought it was just a, a sect and a cult, uh, they thought that actually Christianity was promoting incest because brothers and sisters would marry each other. Uh, not brothers and sisters by blood, but brothers and sisters through Christ. That's how much they thought of themselves by this new identity as a family, as a new community in Christ. First Corinthians, Paul talks about those who have been drawn into this new community. First Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 talks about those who God has chosen to be part of his body, part of the church. And he says that God chose the lowly, that God chose the weak, that God chose those who were despised in the world and those who were seen as foolish and, and small and weak in the world. But in the church, Paul seems to argue that you have a place. That in the church, in the new community, in the family of God, you're, 
you're wanted. You're actually needed. You're actually part of the family. Uh, though, though you may have been despised in the world, uh, an outcast in the world, maybe a social misfit in the world, or someone who was used and abused by the world, when you come into the church, when you're saved through Jesus Christ, you're welcomed into a new community, and you're part of the family. You're home in the church. That's the vision of the New Testament, the vision of Paul, the vision of 1 Corinthians, that those who were despised in the world, who had no place in the world, when you're saved, you're brought into a new community. You're brought into a body. You're brought into a family. You're brought into the church. The beauty of Christianity is that believers in Christ are called into the church. And the Bible teaches that those who are called into the church are needed in the church. They're wanted in the church. They're at home in the church. They're part of the family in the church. Well, this week we come to part four in a five-week series where we've been considering the purposes of the church. We've been asking the question, why does the church exist? If God is going to form us into a church and plant us here in Winston-Salem, what are we supposed to be about? What's the, what's the mission of the church. The first week we considered that one of the reasons the church exists is to worship God. We exist to promote the public worship, the gathered worship of God's people. Uh, The second week we considered the proclamation of the gospel. That One of the reasons the church exists is as God's emissary in the world, as God's ambassador in the world to proclaim the gospel to all the nations and to make disciples. Last week uh, we considered that one of the reasons the church exists is It's not just for evangelism, but for actually equipping believers. That God just doesn't want only new converts in the church. He wants disciples that grow and mature. One of the reasons the church exists is to equip believers. We we, we consider from Ephesians chapter 4 how Christ gives leaders to the church, uh, pastors to the church, and that those leaders are given to the church as gifts from Christ for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. And now we come to part 4. We, we have this written in our Constitution uh, as the mutual fellowship and communion of believers. One of the reasons the church exists, this fourth reason, is for the mutual fellowship and communion of believers. Or another way we could put that in a more kind of popular way would be to say life in the Christian community. Uh, the church is designed to create a new community and to promote life in the Christian community. This is the idea of us blessing one another and having fellowship with one another and communing with one another and really living out as a body, living out as a family, living out as a new community. The church exists to create a new community. And tonight I want to describe that uh, from looking at several texts in the New Testament, describe what life in the new community, in the church, in the family of God, what that is supposed to look like. So start with this. This is sort of the, the thesis of the sermon. You can write it down if you want, but there's no need to do that. Uh, The church exists to create a new community. This new community is governed by Christ and His Word and is made up of those who have been born again and are seeking to follow Him as His disciples. Now this next sentence is sort of our outline for our, our time tonight. This community is to be marked by mutual love, service, encouragement, and accountability. So four points tonight. This community is marked by love, service, encouragement, and mutual accountability. So we have a four-point outline tonight. We're just going to go through each one of those. We're going to describe this by looking at a number of texts of the New Testament. So I hope you have your your Bibles handy. Some of the texts I'll ask you to turn to. Uh, Some of them you can just listen to me read. But let's start first uh, with this matter of love. The church is to be, first of all, 
a community marked by love. While Jesus was on the earth, much of his ministry was committed to explaining what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. Have you ever wondered why uh, uh, we have this whole three to three and a half year period of Jesus walking around with his disciples and teaching all sort of things? If, if Jesus came to die on the cross, uh, why was he teaching for all those years? Well, one of the reasons Jesus came was actually to provide teaching. Uh, he wanted to instruct his disciples on what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And he, he came to inaugurate a kingdom. And he came to explain what it meant to be part of that kingdom and what his rule would be like. And he, he had all sorts of things to say about ethics and, and morals and how we're to live in fellowship with one another and how we're to work to, to follow the Lord Jesus. He had all sorts of things to say about what it meant to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He came in part to teach his disciples how they were to live as members of the new community, of the new kingdom, of the church. Uh, Please turn to John chapter 13. This is one area where Jesus is instructing his disciples on how they're to live with regard to one another. If you're to be my disciple, if you're to follow after me, if you're to call me teacher and identify with uh, me as the Messiah, as the Christ, John 13 tells us what that is to look like. Uh, In the early part of John 13, uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And he tells us that he does this to set an example of practical service. He says, just as I've washed your feet, you're to wash one another's feet. So that's kind of in the background here. I want us to look at two verses, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus more or less sums up what he's trying to communicate to his disciples. John 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, Jesus is saying here, one of the things that is going to distinguish, that ought to distinguish those who follow after him and identifies his disciples and, and say that they follow him, one of the things that's supposed to dominate their, their, their lives, dominate their testimony, dominate their witness, is that they love one another. It's supposed to mark Christian people. Those who claim to follow Christ, they're to follow in the example that Christ has set. Just as Christ loved them, they were then to express that love toward one another. Um, Sadly, throughout Christian history, uh, disciples of Christ, the church in general, has so miserably failed in this area. Many of us personally can recall times in our lives where we've failed in this area. Uh, We have not been perfect in loving one another. And yet Jesus is holding forth an ideal for us. Whatever our failures have been in the past, whatever uh, Christianity has been in the past, whatever uh, that church you have in your mind who maybe uh, uh, was full of hypocrites or whatever, whatever is in the past, uh, today we should take this as words from Jesus that we as God's people should be marked by love. Jesus says one of the things that will define the new community, one of the things that will define a gathering of my disciples is that they love one another. And I'll just say, where you find a community of people where love is lacking, either they don't know the Lord, or they're doing a poor job at being a testimony of His grace. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you ought to love one another. And brothers and sisters, if we don't love each other in this body, shame on us. If we take Christ's name to ourselves, and we profess to represent a community of Christians, People who have experienced his love, shame on us if we don't love one another and love others outside this church. What should mark God's people is love. 
The new community of God, the new community of the church, should be marked by love. Romans 12, 9 through 10, you you don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read. Paul, after spelling out all this wonderful doctrine in the book of Romans, he gets to Romans 12 and starts talking about what uh, the church ought to look like and how we ought to behave toward one another. He says in verse 9 of chapter 12, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And what a picture. He's saying that we should love each other so much it almost becomes a competition. We're trying to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. My wife and I have this running joke recently. I made a comment one night, uh, not to criticize her, but rather to talk about how much I loved her. I said, you know, hon, I've just been thinking about it. I I bet I love you way more than you love me. And uh, at, at first she was a little offended by that. What are you saying? I don't love you? And I said, not at all. I know you love me. I just love you better. Okay. And it was a cute little back and forth, and we got this competition going on. Well, well that's, that's a little silly, okay? But it's not far from the image of Romans 12. We're to outdo each other in expressing our love for one another. And so, as, as we experience and receive love from brothers and sisters in the church, it's to be a stimulant to us. Well, I, I want to love you more. I want to love you better. I want to serve you better. It's almost like this holy, sanctified, loving competition of how we can serve and love one another This is to mark the community of God's people, that they're possessed with the desire to express their love toward one another. Please turn to 1 John chapter 4, perhaps one of the the most uh, powerfully uh, concise and poignant expressions of our need, our impulse uh, to love one another. 1 John chapter 4, I want to read verses 7 through 12. Beloved... Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What is the Apostle John saying in this text? He's saying everyone who has truly been born of God and experienced the new birth must de facto, must, must certainly love others. Why? Because God himself is love. I mean, if we really are born of God, and God is love, and He's expressed His love to us in Jesus Christ, if we really are born of Him, how could we not love? How could we not adopt and take after our Father in heaven? How could we not have His traits uh, finding expression in us? Uh, Some of you children, we we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, dogs and cats and ducks, okay? What does a dog do? A dog? Somebody shout it out. Barks, right? Yeah, a dog barks, a cat meows, a duck quacks, Okay? Well, what, yeah, quack, quack, that's right. Well, what, I, what, what John is telling us is that all those who are, are born of God, who become Christians, I don't know what you just said, but all of those who are born of God and are really converted and are, are Christians, uh, they're going to love others. It's like just like a dog barks, that's what a dog does, right? A Christian loves. That should be so inherent to our nature. It should be part of our instincts as those who have truly been converted. Our impulse, our instinct should be to love the body of Christ, 
to love one another, to serve others. If we truly are born of God who is love and has expressed his love in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be marked by that same love. We should love one another. And I love what the text says. I always wondered why John, John says what he says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. That's true. None of us have ever seen God. But then he seems to say we could know the presence of God if we love. If we love one another, God abides in us. Yeah, we haven't seen him, but we could have him abiding in us if we truly love one another and love is perfected in us. In the world, the law seems to be survival of the fittest. In the world, the law seems to be dog-eat-dog. Uh, it's, it's a jungle out there, is, 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 is what we say. There's competition, right? And uh, uh, my concerns are not your concerns. I'm autonomous, I'm independent, and we're competing. And survival of the fittest out there, that is not the way it should be in the church. It should be completely antithetical to that. That might work well in some sort of free market economic system to promote production. But in the church, it's not about survival of the fittest. In fact, in the text Brad read, we give honor to our weaker members. Rather, in the church, the law is love one another. That's the line for us. Not survival of the fittest, not dog eat dog, but how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I express the love that Christ has shown me? How can I extend that to you? We're to love and serve one another. Just as a side note, I've talked to some of you parents here who have made efforts to discern uh, the grace of God in your children. You've asked questions like, how do I know if my child is converted? How do I don't know if they really know the Lord, or if they're just trying to please mom and dad? This is something to look for. If you want to know if your child is truly a believer, and I don't say this as one who has children, but as one who really does desire to have children, but I was converted as a child, and my siblings, four or five of them, were converted as children. And one of the things we saw was a positive impulse toward loving others. Um, children can express that. And as you seek to discern works of God's grace in your kids, look, look for real love. Not just obedience to rules and not disobeying mom and dad, but we ought to look for positive expressions of love in our children. You'll recall from last week, I, I, I preached from Ephesians 4, those of you who were here, and we talked about the building up of the body of Christ and how uh, leaders are supposed to equip members of the church, and members of the church are then to minister to one another, and I, I seized upon this phrase at the end of Ephesians 4, that, that, that section there in verse 16, Paul says that the church is built up in love, built up in love, it, it builds itself up in love. Interesting, because in Ephesians 2, a text we talked about a few weeks ago, Paul talks about the church being the temple of God, and it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and of Jesus Christ, built on that doctrine, uh, that teaching, that truth. So here's the vision I think we ought to have. The church is built on the foundation of truth, of doctrine, of teaching, of the Bible, but it's built up, it grows, it comes together through love. In my experience, personally, and what I hear from other pastors, uh, is that churches often start together over doctrine, over a commitment to truth, over a commitment to the Bible or a statement of faith. They often start by a commitment to doctrine, but they almost never stay together because of doctrine. They stay together because of love. If a church is to persevere, it's crucial to have a strong doctrinal footing. We've got to have that firm foundation. But how will the church persevere? How will the church overcome trials? How will we learn to overlook one one another's failures and and one another's sins? How will we learn to empathize and understand our various backgrounds and cultures? 
How is it going to happen? Well, love is going to do that. Doctrine's not going to do that. It will be God implanting love in our hearts and being possessed by that love to extend grace to one another and to forgive one another and to not get offended by, by the weaknesses of one another, but to want to encourage and help one another. Brothers and sisters, I hope you have a handle on this, that if we are going to make it, if we're going to be Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem and endure for generations, we will have to lay hold of love and be committed, come what may, we're going to love one another. Uh, I'm not trying to denigrate or to downplay the importance of doctrine. Uh, We are making every effort to be built on that solid foundation of apostolic doctrine. But that will not be enough to win the day. That will not sustain us. What will sustain us is God-given love. Love that we are determined to persevere in. And love that we're determined to extend to one another. The church is built up in love. So if, if, if uh, uh, doctrine and the Bible is the foundation, the concrete or, or whatever upon which the church is built, the, the cement that keeps the bricks together is love. And if the church is going to fail, it's going to come from an erosion of that glue, of that cement that holds the bricks together. But our love is going to be what holds us fast, what keeps the building together Sound doctrine is certainly the foundation of the church, but we must be built up in love. And that means each one of us must be mutually committed to extend love to one another. One more text on this first point. The next three are not going to be as long, I promise. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well-known text. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's often read in the context of weddings. I know we have a couple wedding photographers here. Perhaps you guys have heard this read many, many times. I hope it's not lost on us. It's a familiar text but a text that ought to be central to our understanding of what the church is to be, and we're to be as part of those who are part of the new community. 1 Corinthians verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And I'll just include in here, as for statements of faith, they'll pass away. As for church constitutions, they'll pass away. Verse 9, for we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul says, I could prophesy with the tongues of men and angels. My doctrine, I could have that down pat. I could be the greatest preacher in all the land. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. This could be applied to churches. This could be applied to individual Christians. This could be applied to preachers. Emmanuel Church, if we don't have love, we're nothing. We're just a waste of time. We're nil. We're bankrupt. If you, as a member of the church, don't have love, Paul's saying you have nothing. What are we if we don't have love? 
If we're not possessed by love, if we're not grounded in love, if we're not expressing love to one another, love is the greatest of all virtues. Some of you know C.S. Lewis, great Christian writer, novelist, Christian thinker, apologist. He was also an excellent historian. He read more than just about any Christian thinker of his day. And in the opening of his sermon, The Weight of Glory, the most well-known sermon that he preached, he says these words, If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply on selfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. Love is the chief of all the virtues. Christianity is not merely about me mortifying my sin, me putting to death myself, me practicing personal piety, but it's about me expressing love in the context of Christian community. In another well-known passage, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says this, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully. Wrap it around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. What C.S. Lewis is getting at here is that it is very difficult to love. It is very painful to love. Uh, In the 60s, there was the hippie movement, free love. Uh, There are groups today who will uh, uh, pervade this sort of nebulous just got to love everybody, understand one another. That's really easy. The sort of love that Lewis is talking about, the sort of love that 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about is a painful kind of love, a love that's hard to express. And some of you may know, if you've been in the church very long, you know what it's like to uh, pour your heart out for someone and serve someone and express love to someone only to have it thrown back in your face, only to have your heart broken. You parents definitely know what I mean. To pour your whole life into a child, and what do they do? They break your hearts, Right? Uh, Even if they don't rebel, when they just leave, it just leaves you crushed, right? Uh, To love others is to to be vulnerable. It leaves us uh, vulnerable to pain and to sorrow and to heartache. Well, brothers and sisters, we ought not to lose heart. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures. And it will be painful to love one another. There are going to be times when we're going to have to overlook each other's faults. There are going to be times when we're, we're working for the good of a brother or sister and trying to help them, and they kind of spurn us, and it stings. I open myself up to them, and they kind of shut me down. That's going to happen. In the, if you've ever been in a church very long, I'm sure that's happened to you. I know it's happened to me, and I even have scars from times in which I've extended love to others, and it's not been returned. That will happen. But what is your alternative? To lock up your heart in what Lewis calls the casket or coffin of your selfishness? And to become impenetrable? I'm not going to allow my heart to be broken again. I'm not going to be vulnerable with anybody. I'm not even buying a dog because dogs die and I'll have my heart broken again. Is that, what, is that the option? Not if you're a Christian. The Bible says we ought to love one another. And we never stop loving one another. We bear all things. We endure. And no doubt it will hurt. But to extend love to someone 
is the most wonderful thing you could ever do. And to experience love from someone else is the most wonderful thing you could ever experience. And I can testify it's happened for me and has happened for many of you and will happen for us in the context of the church. In a community marked by love, I don't care how you've been burned in the past, you will experience real, true, communal love in the context of the church. St. Augustine was one of the most penetrating minds that ever came into being. That's acknowledged by Christians and non-Christians alike. And he wrote something of a spiritual autobiography that he called uh, Confessions, or Confessions of St. Augustine. He talks about his pursuit of God and his pursuit of love and his pursuit of delight and joy. And he says this, The single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and be loved. To love and be loved. I think for some of you, that may be what drew you to Christianity. I wanted to love and be loved. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that looked like. And you've come in Christ to love God and to be loved by Him. And you know what it's like to love others in the new community in the church and to be loved by them in return. Augustine found Christ and His church. C.S. Lewis found Christ and His church. Do you have Christ and His church? And have you been brought into the new community that is to be marked by love? Well, now, secondly, I'm going to move through these last three points very quickly because I spent all my time on that first one, okay? The new community, first of all, is to be marked by love. Secondly, it's to be marked by service. Marked by service. Love is never without hands and feet, okay? We, it, it's dishonest to say that we love one another if we never express that love to one another. We never say that to one another. If we never serve one another. I was going to read John 13, but for the sake of time, I won't. But where it talks, where Jesus talks about washing his disciples' feet and the example he sets for his disciples, we ought to wash one another's feet. We ought to serve one another. As Jesus served us, we're to follow his example. And the, the church should be marked by people that are committed to outdoing each other in service. Uh, we want to bless one another, help one another, encourage one another, serve one another. The church is to be marked by service, it's not just a place where we come and coalesce and nurse our wounds and hang out and then leave. But rather, during the week, we ought to be helping each other. Brother and sister, how can I, how can I serve you? You have a, a, a busy mom who gets sick with the flu and she's got to take care of her kids. What if I came over and watched them for a few hours? What if I, I cooked a meal for you guys? You've got a brother or sister who's down and just struggling in a job where it's kind of a dead-end situation. Hey, let me take you out to coffee and just... Pray with you, talk about your situation. You got a, a, a family or a brother and sister in the church who's, who's down on their luck, having trouble finding a job, and bills are piling up. Hey, you know, God has blessed uh, me and my family. Can I, can I help address some of your needs? I want to pay a few bills for you. I want to serve you. That should be going on in the context of the church. It's a community marked by not only love, but the expression of love through acts of practical service to each other. If you want to plug in and serve the church, if you want to plug in and serve this church, start with serving your brothers and sisters through practical acts of kindness. Thirdly, we've seen that the community is to be marked by love. Secondly, service. Now thirdly, we're to be a community marked by encouragement in the faith. I'll move very quickly here. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up. Galatians 6.2 says, We're to bear one another's Burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now listen to Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to consider 
how to stir one another up to love and good works. It doesn't just happen by osmosis, but we're actually supposed to think about it. And so I see a brother or sister in need, I'm supposed to consider, how can I stir my brother or sister up? How can I help them? What can I do that would actually encourage and serve and help them? And so if, if you meet during the week, if you're going to get together and you're driving to go to coffee or go to breakfast with one another, you should be thinking, how can I encourage this brother or sister? How can I serve this brother or sister? Consider I can stimulate this person to love and, and good works. We ought to be undertaking to encourage and to help one another. Now, fourthly and finally, church is to be a community marked by love. Secondly, service. Third, encouragement. We're to be a community marked by mutual accountability and ownership. Accountability and ownership. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, I'd like to read verses 12 through 14. A community marked by accountability and mutual ownership. Let's read Hebrews 3 verses 12 through 14. Follow along as I read. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The writer of Hebrews is acknowledging a reality in a fallen world. We all still sin. We all still fail. And with the knowledge that we sin, uh, we ought to be helping one another in mortifying our sin and overcoming our sin. We're to avoid an evil and unbelieving heart, that sort of thing that leads you to fall away from the faith. We're to resist the deceitfulness of sin, and we're to have an eye on one another to help one another in our fights with sin. Uh, what I think Hebrews three twelve through 14 is acknowledging is the dynamic of mutual accountability in the church. Um, one way we could say that uh, you, you hear people say today things like, you know, well, my, my faith is very, very personal. It's very personal to me. I have my beliefs. That's my faith, right? Okay, faith is always personal. It's always personal. How could it not be? Faith is always personal, but it is never private. Faith is always personal, but it's never private. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who are being killed because they're convinced of that. Their faith is not a private matter. Okay, we're to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, right? Our faith is always a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. Uh, We are to relate to one another on a spiritual level. And brothers and sisters, your spiritual well-being is my business. And my spiritual well-being is your business. Uh, We are a family. And we are to stimulate one another spiritually and to help one another in our walks with the Lord. And if you're not doing well, I I should want to encourage you and help you. And if I'm not doing well, I should expect that I could come to you for for help and encouragement in the faith. We're to be mutually accountable to one another. And if we see in our brother or sister a pattern of sin, we're to go to them and exhort them and try to help them. Brother or sister, why are you struggling in this sin? And, and, And let me help you. Do you... Appreciate the gospel and understand the forgiveness that's in Christ. And yet do you appreciate all that Christ wants his disciples to be. And I want to help you and maybe be an accountability partner for you in this area and help you fight this sin. There's nothing more wholesome than that in the context of the church in the new community. We're responsible for one another. We should help one another 
This new community doesn't require that each member be an extrovert, but it does require that each member be accountable to the others. Just like it is in a family. If one of the kids is struggling, the family coalesces around that person and helps that person, comes alongside that person and and tries to prop them up. Well, it's the same in the church. If one of us is doing poorly or struggling or falling into sin, uh, those who are connected to them should go to them and help them and seek to encourage them. I'll just say right now, in the context of Emmanuel Church, the church that we want to be, the church that we aspire to be, if you do not like people taking interest in your spiritual life, you're not going to be happy here. I'll just say that from the get-go. If you, if you do not want people asking, hey, brother, sister, how are you doing spiritually? Hey, have you been able to find time in God's Word refreshing lately? Are you seeking God in prayer? If you don't like those kinds of questions and those kinds of relationships, uh, you're not going to find a happy home here. And I say that unapologetically. If we're the church, if we're the new community, if we're the family of God, we should be involved in one another's lives. Your spiritual well-being is a, a public matter. Now, that's not to say that there are not matters that can be kept private or that can be kept between two friends or anything like that. Some things do require discretion. But in general, if one person is weak and hurting and struggling, we ought to go to that member and help them and prop them up. And the text that Brad read in 1 Corinthians 12 more or less says that we're only as strong as our weakest member. We really should go to those who are in need, those who are in sin, and exhort them and help them and and point them to Christ. I'll tell you one question. I I do a lot of one-on-ones with with some of you here and and others. One question I've been asking people a lot lately, it's kind of my favorite discipleship question, is to say, uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, how are you doing spiritually? 10 being, man, I am at the highest mountaintop of my entire Christian life, and 1 being, I am in the lowest valley, and I don't even know that I'm a Christian anymore, okay? On a scale from 1 to 10, how are you doing spiritually? And they say, well, uh, I'd say a 6. And then my follow-up is, why aren't you a 1? Well, well uh, you know, the Lord's forgiven my sins, and he's, he's interceding for me even now, and, you know, though I'm not perfect, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing fruit in my life, and... It's, it's, it's been good on the whole. And then I say, okay, now, now you said you're a six. Why aren't you a ten? Forces them to think, oh, well, I still struggle with certain sins. To be honest, our marriage isn't the best it's ever been. And I, I think I failed some in that area. And I got mad at the kids the other day. And I, 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 have, I have places to go still. I have to grow still. And then we talk about that. Well, brother, how, how can I encourage you? Uh, can I be a help to you in praying for you and in, in, in getting you to, to be a ten? We should have that sort of entrance into one another's lives. Uh, we should be asking each other. Let's, let's not just be superficial Christians who come in here and are comfortable and, and then leave and go do our Sunday afternoon lunch thing all on our own. Let's be involved in one another's lives. And let's recognize that this is the vision that the Bible lays out for us. The new community, the church, is to be marked by mutual accountability. We're a family. We, we're part of one another. We're a body. We're members one to another. And we should be invested in one another. For the sake of time, I'm going to have to pass over a lot of material and just wrap up here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 that Brad read talked about how we were a body and that every member is needed. That the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. And the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. Every member is needed. Okay? If there's anything 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us, it's that it's in every way appropriate for us to say to our brothers and sisters, I need you. There's nothing wrong with that in the context of the church. You say that at your place of work, 
hey, I need a break, I need help, I need, you might get fired. Okay, we're not talking about the world now, survival of the fittest out there. We're talking about the church. In the church, it's okay to need one another. It's okay to look at your brother or sister across the table and say, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. I, I need your help. Will you just pray with me? Uh, will you help keep me accountable in this area? Uh, do you have a book you could recommend that maybe we could read together? I need you. I need your help. That's in every way appropriate. I, I, I'm in a family of nine. Uh, I grew up in a family of nine. Seven kids, two parents. And uh, one member of the family who remained unnamed just had a hard time lately. Life has not come easy to this person. And uh, I was on the phone with this individual, and they were saying, oh, yeah, I just feel like such a burden. I don't, I don't, don't really want to talk about my problems all the time. I don't, want, I don't want you to have to get involved or whatever. And I just said, look, we're a family. If I were doing poorly and I needed help, I'd go to you. I need you, I need your, and you need me. That's, that's wholesome. That's good. That's what a family is. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that it's in every way okay to need others. We can say, I need you. And 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us it's okay to say, I love you. 1 Corinthians 12 says we can say, I need you. 1 Corinthians 12, we can say, I love you. That ought to be a common phrase that we say to one another. I love you. I love you in Christ. You're my brother or sister. I'm committed to your well-being. I'm committed to love you. I'm committed to serve you. I love you. Now, just observe. Don't read too much into this statement. I found that that's easier for women. So, guys, we need to buck up, get in touch with maybe our more emotional side, and be willing to say, brother, I love you, and I'm for you, and I want to serve you. And you know what? I kind of need you. I know it's weird for me to admit that, but I need you, and I love you. We're a family. We're a new community in Christ. Ayn Rand was a well-known 20th century Russian-American novelist and philosopher. And she's famous for her books, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. The latter, Atlas Shrugged, frequently appears toward the top of polls by editors, writers, and readers alike as one of the greatest books ever written, but specifically in the 20th century. In the book, Rand seeks to present a moral justification for capitalism and free market economics. The book is a novel, and it presents the drama of a group of extremely successful industrialists who mutually agree to withdraw from society because their gifts are not valued, and their massive capacity to produce goods and services is being exploited by the government. And it's being exploited by the lower classes, and they're not appreciated. And all these things that they produce and all this value they create, well, no one appreciates it. And rather than thanking us, we just get taxed and exploited. So they decide that they're going to pull out of society. That's the imagery there of Atlas shrugging. Atlas holds the world on his shoulders, and he shrugs, and the world falls, right? Well, what happens in the drama of Atlas Shrugged is that these industrialists pull out of the world and, and back away and form this secret community, and utter anarchy ensues. Utter chaos. The world basically comes undone. For what it's worth, I've read the book a couple of times. Uh, there are things in it I think that are commendable and things that Christians ought to condemn. This group of wealthy and powerful industrialists adopt a code of ethics that is governed by the following dictum, which they often recite to themselves and to one another. This is sort of the, the rule in their secret society of great businessmen and industrialists. They say this. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another nor ask another to live for mine. 
swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another, nor ask another to live for the sake of mine. That's the world. Survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog. You're on your own. Christ is utterly different. The church is utterly different. The body of Christ is utterly different. The family of God is utterly different. It is in every way right and good that we depend on one another. It is in every way appropriate that as Christ has laid down his life for us, we lay down our lives for each other. This is the fellowship and communion of believers. This is what it means to be in the new community. We need each other. We love each other. We can depend on one another. And that will take effort, that will take perseverance, that will hurt, will get burned, but it's good, y'all. It's good to open ourselves to this kind of love, to love one another and express the love that we've been shown in Christ, despised in the world, but loved in the church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I'm particularly conscious that this sermon has been preached so imperfectly and uh, it's not been without failure. Uh, but Lord, I pray that uh, the chaff would be separated from the pure wheat of your word and only that which is good would remain in our minds. Father, we thank you so much for your bride, the church. We thank you so much for the body of Christ we thank you so much for the family of God where we really are brothers and sisters. Some of us can testify that if it were not for our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, we would have failed. We would have uh, uh, left Christ. We would have forsaken the faith. We would have gone the way of the world. But you have used Christian people in our lives to bless us and encourage us and to prop us up. It is such a privilege to be part of this new community. We thank you. Uh, that in Christianity we're not promoted to live a, 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 a maverick Christian kind of life where we're on our own just paving our way and trailblazing our path in the world, but that we have the joy of being part of a family. Some of us here in this room, I know for a fact, uh, do not have Christian families, and some of us have experienced abandonment, and some of us have experienced abuse, and some of us have experienced parents who failed us, and brothers and sisters who failed us, and people that should have been there for us to help us, and they, they let us down, and we were used and abused, but Lord, your church is better than that. Christ is better than that. And if you would make us into a church, we would be better than that. Would you make us into a community of your people that are marked by love, that are marked by service, that are marked by encouragement, that are marked by accountability and ownership, and may it be the testimony of those that are here today who are part of this church years from now that we can look back and testify of all the ways you use the body of Christ to help us along the path to heaven. Lord, this pilgrimage we're on to heaven is a community project. It is an effort that will require all hands on deck. And so would you move on each one of us in whatever practical ways we can serve your church and plug in Show us how we can do that. Father, we pray for each one here who has not been born again and has not been introduced to this wonderful new community. We would want to spare them, seeking to find their identity in a world that would just eat them up. A world that would force them into the machinery of Darwinism and of survival of the fittest. We want them to be in the family of Christ and in the church. We want them to be our brothers and sisters. 
We want to love them and serve them and encourage them and help them. Would you save them and enable us to do that, we pray. Lord, be with us as we go. Encourage us throughout the week and remind us of these truths from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We all thank you for coming and being with us tonight. I'll just say to those of you who are visiting, hopefully you received a Connect card uh, when you walked in tonight. If you would like, you're welcome to fill that out and just leave it on your seat. we got ushers coming through at the end. You can pick that up. You can feel free to uh, leave your email or, or some way we could contact you. Uh, but we're very glad that you came and, and hope that you've been blessed. Uh, y'all, we're dismissed. <laughs>